have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 14. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 14. We're looking at the seventh and final letter to the churches of Asia Minor as they're addressed in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. One of the challenges of expositional preaching, preaching verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book, which is the preferred way to preach the Bible, is that each time you break the passage, you do some violence to our interpretation of the passage as a single unit. Every time you break the cookie, crumbs are lost in that process. One of the things I think that has led to poor interpretation in the book of Revelation is that we have so separated the subunits of the book one from another that we fail to see the harmony, the cohesiveness of the book, and the singular message that these chapters together as a unit are, are painting for us, the message that's being com communicated from the book itself. Even the idea of looking at these seven letters as letters suggests something that's not entirely fair of these two chapters. To address a letter to the Laodiceans is to suggest that what Jesus says to the church of Laodicea is exclusive to that church. But the truth of the matter is that everything Jesus says to every church in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 is intended for the good or the well-being of every other church listed in those two chapters. And moreover, it is useful, it is beneficial for every church in every age to benefit from, to glean from these letters. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things I think that can be overlooked is that the situation in Laodicea is not terribly dissimilar to the situation in other cities. Even where the church is somewhat healthier, the symptoms of what's being experienced in the church at Laodicea exist within those congregations as well. Some have assessed that the letter to the church at Laodicea is the most severe of the seven here in these two chapters, and I think that's probably the case. And so what we're doing here is we're ending this section on a, on a really gloomy note, and we're preparing to set off into chapters four and five, which is the crescendo of the early part of the book of Revelation. In chapters 2 and 3, things are bad, right? And things end really bad in this section. The situation at Laodicea is a mess. And it's not the only church where there's a mess. And the symptoms of Laodicea's mess have permeated the other seven churches of Asia Minor. The situation in the church is bleak. It is gloomy. It, it is, it is a, a doom-filled scenario. And worse than that, the church, with all of its issues, exists in the midst of a dark, crooked, and perverse generation. Things are bad. That's the problem that's being presented to us in chapters 2 and 3. The answer that I hope we'll leave today well positioned to receive to all our problems is presented in chapters 4 and 5, and his name is Jesus. The answer to our issues are not in Thyatira or Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or Sardis or Laodicea or even Philadelphia. The answer to our issues is in heaven. And the answer comes in the person, through the work, and by the power of our King, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse number 14. Let's read and discern further the desperate situation the church finds itself in. Join me in standing out of respect and honor. 
for the reading of God's word. Revelation 3 and verse number 14. Listen to what the Bible says. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the amen, the faithful and true witness. The originator of God's creation says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me, the victor. I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The imagery that Jesus uses here in these verses is just gross. Jesus says, you're neither hot or cold, you're lukewarm. And, and I've got this impulse to vomit you out of my mouth. It may be gross, but it's imagery that would resonate with people in the city of Laodicea in the first century. Laodicea was one of three cities that formed this triangle in the Lycus Valley. Four miles from Laodicea was the city of Colossae, the city to which Paul writes the book of Colossians. In fact, you might remember that in the conclusion of Colossians, Paul instructs the church that they would see to it that members of the church in Laodicea would likewise read the book we know as Colossians. The Christological heresy that had crept into the church at Colossae had made its way to Laodicea, and the answer to their theological problems was found in the book of Colossians under the instruction of the Apostle Paul. Colossae was known for a number of things, but probably the, the most important thing Colossae was known for as it pertains to our passage this morning was cold and clear drinking water. Colossae was positioned such that the snow runoff, the melt from the snow in the spring coming down the mountains that form the Lycus Valley would run into the city of Colossae, providing the city with cold, clear, and fresh drinking water. That may seem to you an insignificant thing in a day and an age when we walk over to the faucet and turn the handle to receive clear and cold drinking water, but in a first century context, it's a pretty big deal. Not only was it palatable, it seemed constantly cold. This was a great benefit of living in the city of Colossae. 11 miles from the city of Laodicea was the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis did not have the cold, clear drinking water of Colossae. What they had rather was warm water that was made beneficial to them by the strong mineral content in the soil that surrounded the city of Hierapolis. In fact, the cliffs over which the runoff would run 
were white with lime and minerals and would shine in the sunlight at certain times of the day. For that reason, Hierapolis becomes a place of significance with regards to medicine. People would travel there from all over to bathe in the warm mineral baths or to drink in small doses the warm mineral water believed to help with various infirmities. Laodicea tried to seize upon the proximity of Colossae and Hierapolis at different times. You could import from Hierapolis carryable portions of their warm mineral water in order to soothe the infirmities or meet the, the medicinal needs of the people within the city of Laodicea. And they had at times attempted to channel water with various modes of plumbing from the city of Colossae into the city of Laodicea. But by the time water travels even the distance of four miles, and with the primitive efforts at channeling, canaling, or plumbing water into the city, what you wound up with was some mixture of cold water and mineral water, tepid, warm water that wasn't palatable and would only create the impulse to vomit for anyone who attempted to drink it. it. It may be gross imagery, but it made perfect sense to those in Laodicea. Jesus is framing the church here as useless. There's no profitability to this church. There's no benefit whatsoever to this church. This church is powerless when it comes to kingdom advancing, eternally significant work, and they are powerless because they have given themselves over to hypocrisy. Verse 14, Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the originator of God's creation says, this is the way Christ addresses himself. He says, I am the amen. To say amen is more than just like a cheer or a slogan that we do at church, right? To say amen is to affirm the truthfulness of a statement. When someone says amen, preachers like amens. But frankly, there are times when I like to not have amens because it can be an indication that we're sort of meddling. I think sometimes there's an addiction to amens on the part of pastors. And so the inclination is to constantly speak into this echo chamber, the kind of truths or principles that are already roundly accepted within their congregations, never providing any pressure whatsoever in those weakened areas of our lives where correction and rebuke needs to unfold. But the amen is a way of saying, I'm with you. I believe it. It is true. It is right. Jesus uses the amen throughout the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. In fact, Jesus will double amen himself before he even makes a statement. Amen, amen, I say to you, Jesus says. Which is to say what follows is absolutely, verifiably, eternally true and significant in your life. You should come in close and listen. And here Jesus refers to himself as the amen, as the true one. Not dissimilar to what Jesus says in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Jesus is commending himself as the true message of salvation, the true one. He further describes himself as the faithful and the true witness. This is a return to the language of Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus is referred to as the faithful witness. We've even titled this series of sermons as Faithful Witness. The basic message of the book being that Jesus is the faithful witness and we are to pattern our lives after his 
faithful witness in every possible way. The language of faithful witness is picked up again in Revelation chapter 2, speaking of Antipas. The only individual person mentioned as a member of the church in all of the book of Revelation, and he himself is held up as a model for us, as a faithful witness who gave him life, his life, who was killed among the church at Pergamum. Jesus is the pattern by which we are to model our lives, the amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the originator of God's creation. And here's what he says to the church, beginning in verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. They had become useless for their hypocrisy. You know, I think the world at times is on to something at the level of distaste that even lost people can have toward hypocrisy. It is among the most distasteful of all sins. Now, the way that's handled, the way it finds application in their lives at times is unhelpful and impractical and removed from reality. Statements like, I don't want to go to such and such church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, the reality that Walmart is full of hypocrites, but I need things from Walmart, you know, and, and there are times when churches are full of hypocrites, but I, I need the gathered worship of the church and, and the attendance of the spirit that often comes with the corporate worship of the church. I don't come here first and foremost for you, although I do delight in your fellowship. I come here first and foremost to meet with Jesus. But hypocrisy is an issue. And it's inhibited the ability of the church at Laodicea to make an eternally significant contribution to the advancement of the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, it will inhibit your ability. And it can inhibit our ability corporately to make a, meaning, a meaningful, eternally significant contribution to the advancement of the kingdom. In the kingdom, there is no room for compromise. There, there is no sheep-goat-fence-walking hybrid. There are just sheep and goats. There are just wheat and tares. There are just lost and saved. But as has been the case in a number of church examples we've observed so far in the book of Revelation, those lines have been blurred in the church at Laodicea. And she has been rendered powerless for any substantial work of ministry. Now here's the danger. What Jesus begins to describe in the next couple of verses is the most frightening part of the passage. Not that compromise can come to the church, not that churches can give themselves to hypocrisy, that's not breaking news. The scary thing about our passage is that these things can come to pass without our ever being aware. We can be completely clueless to this reality. In fact, the church at Laodicea is sincerely stating with confidence that they're in a good place, that all is well. Jesus' assessment of the church flies in the face of the way they've evaluated themselves. Look at verse 17. Because you say, I'm rich, I have become wealthy and need nothing 
and you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This has happened, and they didn't even know it. Now listen, y'all come in real close. Would you consider this morning that there's at least some possibility that in ways that you are unaware of, that compromise, that sin has crept into your heart? I like to say you don't ask a fish what it feels like to be wet. They don't know. It's just the environment in which they live. Is it barely possible that some of you have been tolerating or toying around with sin for so long that you're oblivious to its presence in your life? That it's just there like a bad roommate that doesn't go away. You've grown accustomed to its presence. In the physical realm, there are some parallels to this kind of experience. This bit by bit, incremental drift away from the things of God. The chances of you recognizing or realizing that everyone else sees that additional 20 pounds is really low until you see a picture. How many of you ever had that experience? You think you're doing good, you look good, you're 40 and you think you look like you did when you were 20, and then you see a picture. And you don't look like you thought you looked. And for the first time, from this different perspective, you can finally see yourself for what you are, but you had been living oblivious to the reality that that 20 pounds is pretty substantial. As in Jim, a while back, it was one of those rare occasions of being there almost by yourself. You sort of delight in those moments. No one's in the way. All of the equipment is available. All of those mirrors, you know. You're enjoying yourself and you're getting after it. And all at once, there was this large, bald man that was sneaking up behind me. And he was me. And I had no idea. I just thought I was kind of tracking in a healthy direction, feeling pretty good about myself. Then I saw myself from a different perspective. In the spiritual realm, the same is true. Same is true. There are these incremental shifts happening in your life. There is no neutral ground. You're either moving forward or you're moving back spiritually. And the moving back almost always comes unawares. You're almost always ignorant to the reality that drift is setting in. That something is happening in your heart, that your heart is hardening over to the convicting power of God's Holy Spirit. The sensitivity you once knew to God's Spirit and His direction in your life is out the window. It's been a long time since your devotional time was warm-hearted and impassioned. It's been a long time since there was a sweetness and fellowship in prayer. And you've just forgotten what it used to be like in walking with Jesus. This church believed themselves to be on the right track, but that couldn't have been further from the truth for them. They said, we are rich, we have become wealthy, we don't need anything. And yet Jesus notes, you don't know that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now Jesus is pointing at their, he's needling at their points of pride. You are wretched, poor, blind, and naked. There are three major exports for which the city of Laodicea was well known. We might argue one trade and two 
exports. The city of Laodicea was known for its gold. It was a city that was involved in a great deal of, of finance. Historians have gone back and tried to determine the Jewish population of the city of Laodicea, and that kind of sociological examination is pretty common. A lot of times it's motivated by a want to understand the context of the Bible better. But one of, one of the ways that they've done that is by going back and looking at gold exportation from the city of Laodicea. There came a point in time in Laodicea's history when the government prohibited the export of gold because they needed gold to back the currency of the land. The problem was that Jews were exporting gold. You couldn't give Roman currency to pay your temple tax in the city of Jerusalem, so you would use gold to make your temple tax contribution in the city of Jerusalem. This became such an issue that at one point a ship was seized and its cargo was seized, its cargo bound for Israel, and the historian notes that more than 20 pounds of gold was found upon that ship, 20 pounds of gold that represented the temple tax being paid by the Jewish men of the city of Laodicea. That tells us two things. There's a lot of Jewish men in the city of Laodicea, and number two, there's a lot of gold to get your hands on. This was a city of incredible wealth, and yet Jesus says, what you don't realize is that you are poor and you are wretched. They, they had equated material wealth, their physical prosperity with spiritual wealth. They're the opposite of the situation in the city of Smyrna. That small and insignificant congregation for all of their poverty, Jesus deems to be spiritually wealthy. And here is Laodicea on the other side of the coin who have everything they could hope or dream to have. And yet Jesus says, you are spiritually impoverished. One of the major exports from the city of Laodicea was its wool, specifically its black wool. The city was known for this. You would use black wool for carpet and luxurious homes or palaces. And the wealthiest of Laodicea would have used black wool to clothe themselves. It would be the, the, the cloth that they would use to make their garments. Jesus says, you don't realize that not only are you poor and wretched, but you're naked. You're unclothed. What you ought to do rather is to buy from me white garments to cover your nakedness and shame. You're proud of your black woolen garments, but what you really need is to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the second major export was this eye salve, which must have been guarded like the recipe to Coke. Because even still, we don't know what made this eye salve so important or so desirable, but apparently everyone wanted it, and everyone believed it to have some medicinal value when applied to the eyes. Perhaps if we knew the ingredients, we could better understand its association with the city of Laodicea. But they, 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 they thought, hey, we've got it going on here. This is, this is our contribution to advancement in first century medicine. We are the eye salve people. And yet Jesus says, not only are you poor and naked to your shame, but you are blind. And what you ought to do is to buy salve from me, to be applied to your eyes that you might be able to see yourself for how and who and what you really are. Jesus is needling in all of their points of pride. 
They've equated in their mind their material prosperity and their physical health with the blessing and the favor of God. That's a dangerous connection. Our tendency is to think about the prosperity gospel, the health and prosperity gospel, as something unique to the 20th and 21st century. But this detestable misrepresentation of the message of the Bible has existed since the dawn of time. Even as far back as the Old Testament, you realize the book of Job, which most scholars believe to be the oldest book in the Bible, is written to combat the idea that just because you are healthy and wealthy does not mean that you enjoy the favor and the blessing of God. Here we find a perfectly affluent church with everything it seems going for them, and yet they are spiritually impoverished, separated from Jesus, and void of the power and work of God's Holy Spirit. This is a dreadful condition to find oneself in. Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, listen carefully. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. It's impossible for us to know or understand the, with precision the spiritual makeup of the church, but it's fair that we would assume that there were a great many unregenerate people in this church. A good many people who did not know Jesus at all. In fact, at face value, what it means to be a hypocrite is to be a lost person who is pretending to be a saved person. That's what hypocrisy is. It comes from the idea of play acting. Someone was a hypocrite in antiquity. They were a person who wore a mask in some play and played a part that was different from who they were in reality. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. But the way lukewarmness is used in our passage affords for some measure of flexibility. And it does certainly seem that within the church at Laodicea, there were those who were genuinely born again, who had come to a moment in time in their life of realizing that they were sinners whose destiny was hell and only Jesus could change that. They had called out to God for the grace and forgiveness that can only be found in him. But over the course of time, compromise had begun to set in. They had made certain concessions to accommodate the culture around them. And to those born-again believers who'd been influenced by their peers, by society, by the pressures of life in the here and now, to accommodate the culture and to be like those around them, Jesus says, listen, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be committed and repent. This is a stern word of warning. Listen to me, the lost person has a certain degree of license to live as they will, to engage in sin, to indulge in the passing pleasures of this life without the same measure of discipline, weight, frustration, anger, hostility, discomfort that the believer might suffer with under the same circumstances. Some of you are here having lived a relatively long period of your life without faith in Jesus. And you may have observed in that season of your life that there were times when you gave yourself over to the passing pleasures of this life and you did so somewhat happily, haphazardly, without care or concern. And now on this side of your conversion experience, you have taken note of the way the Spirit of God haunts and God 
disciplines, when sin disrupts the harmony we would otherwise enjoy with his Holy Spirit. As a believer, your rebellion against God always comes with the rod of God. For whom he loves, he chastens. And here the word of warning is issued again. Whom he loves, he chastens, he rebukes, he corrects. Be committed and repent of your sin. I've observed in the life of a dear friend in recent days, this reality being brought to bear. I mean a close friend, one who has been a true friend to me. One who's been at my side sharing the gospel. One who I've observed give sacrificially in ways. His generosity exceeded, I think, anyone I have ever known in life. For years in, in our ministry, for years in my life, and for years in his life, every Monday of his week was committed to fasting and praying for me in my ministry, without exception, without qualification. Frustrations in church, difficulties in life, created distance between himself and the fellowship and a certain measure of rebellion. And I've watched things spiral down even in his physical health and the young man breathed his last breath in recent days in my estimation as a believer born again and bound for heaven but no less under the hand of God's disciplinary judgment against him it is a dangerous dangerous thing as a believer to run headlong into the cares and the concerns of this world your actions will always be will always be followed by the discipline of God against you. Here Jesus says, "As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline." Look at verse twenty. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and have dinner with him, and he with me. Now listen, this is not the evangelistic hook on the end of your presentation to a lost person. This is Jesus speaking to the church. I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking, anxiously anticipating that someone would welcome me in. This is a hard reality, right? The truth of the matter is that all over the world today, there are churches who are meeting under the premise that they have gathered to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth when they have all together closed him out. And Jesus is standing at the door desiring to meet with them, to come in and to dine with them and, and then with, with himself. And the reality is that there are individual members of churches, even in healthy congregations, who have assembled themselves with the church, presuming themselves to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth when they have all together locked the lordship of Jesus out of their heart and life. This is a scary reality. Jesus says, I'm, I'm knocking, and if anyone will open the door and let me in, I'm, I'm interested in participating, I'm interested in coming in, I'm interested in moving in the church. Jesus might say of us individually, I'm interested in moving in, I'm interested in the conviction of sin, I'm interested in sanctifying your life, I'm interested in empowering you for gospel ministry, I'm interested in calling you to greater ministry, I'm interested to do these powerful things, these greater works that Jesus speaks of. But I've been closed out. Until you open, I'll be standing outside the door, knocking and waiting. 
Could it be that Jesus has interest in doing greater works in your life? Standing at the door knocking, but for your attachments to the things of this world, for your disinterest in the confession and repentance of your pet sin, you have shut him out? Is it barely possible that in ways that have come to pass imperceptibly, that your heart has drifted so far from God that you have closed the door, quenched the spirit, and resisted the will of God for you? This is a scary passage about a scary reality that usually flies under the radar for us. If you've ever had a friend, family member, who you, who you just watched self-destruct in sin, and you would talk to them and coach them and encourage them to repent, and you would, you would point them toward the disaster that this sin was, was creating in their life, and, and, and your heart was so heavy because they were self-destructing, but they just couldn't see it. There's a theological reason for that. It's that sin has a blinding effect. All, all we're left to do is to plead with Jesus in the imagery of our passage for heavenly eye salve that he would enable us to see ourselves for who we are in truth. To cease judging ourselves against the standard of those around us, laying down in the ditch, making the kind of comparisons that have become almost customary. I'm not as bad as he is or I'm not as bad as she is and see ourselves against the standard of God's holy word. Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He hears the angelic song, holy, holy, holy. The bright glory of God shines throughout the temple in Isaiah's vision. And his first response is to say, woe is me, for I am undone, a man of unclean lips who lives in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Verse 21, Jesus says to the victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. Anyone who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the victor, you will rule with me. I want to show you something, and I'm going to turn you to a passage that's the most controversial passage in the book of Revelation. And I'm not going to seek to resolve all of the controversy or answer all the questions. I'm going to make more of a mess than I intend to clean up. But I do want you to see a couple of things here. In the conclusion of each of these seven letters, some promise is given to the church. Here it's a throne. In another passage, Jesus says, I'm going to give you the bright morning star. In another passage, Jesus says, I'm going to give you access to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Every promise offered in the conclusion of each of these seven letters is described in fuller detail in chapters 20 through 22 of the book of Revelation. I want you to turn to chapter 20. And I want you to see something of the nature of this promise because I think it's going to help us to sense the weight of what Jesus is inviting us to. I would note as you're turning there in your Bible that this speaks to the unity of the book of Revelation and that making that connection will aid you considerably in understanding the movement of the book. In Revelation 20, remember we're coming away from the letter to the church at Laodicea where Jesus has promised to the victor 
a throne, that they would rule with him, that they would sit with him, even as he sits upon the Father's throne. Revelation 20 and verse 4. Then I saw thrones. People seated on them were given authority to judge, the very thing just described in the previous passage. I also saw the people who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. What you read there is a description of the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus to the church at Laodicea. Those who have been beheaded haven't missed anything. In fact, immediately, they have been gathered about the throne of Jesus and they enjoy with Christ his authority ruling and reigning over all creation. This is the first resurrection. And we'll unpack that in greater detail when we get there some months from now. But here's what I want you to see in the passage. These are those, the victor, who has received this reward from Jesus, has, number one, been beheaded. <clears throat> they have marched face first into death, confidently confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, not the Caesar, that he's the only begotten son of God, not the Caesar, and that confession has cost them their life. But they didn't lose anything in the process. This is the first resurrection. Secondly, not only have they confessed their faith until death, the Bible is clear that they don't make concessions with regards to their confession, nor do they compromise with regards to the word of God. They have kept their confession that Jesus is Lord, and they have held fast to the standard of God's word. These men and women, beheaded for their faith, become the prototype for us. We are to pattern our experience after theirs. Thirdly, they don't take the mark of the beast on their forehead. Now, I wanna, I'm going to say this enough that it's gonna become, you're just going to know. The mark of the beast is not a physical mark. It is an apocalyptic way of saying that with your mind, you do not identify with the beast. Or in the case of taking the mark, you do identify with the beast. Those who are here beheaded, but now before the throne, <coughs> are those who in their thoughts, who with their faith, with their mind, with their worldview, have not identified with the beast. Fourth, these are those who have not taken the mark of the beast on their right hand, which is to say by virtue of their actions and their activities, the things that they do, they have persevered in identifying with Jesus and not with the beast. And they're extolled as the pattern by which we're to set our life as those who've gotten it right, who've received the reward of God as the victor. Now I want us to go to this passage because I think it helps us to feel the weight of what Jesus is inviting us to do. If you want to get the reward that's described in the passage that we've studied this morning, your life could end this way. There's no guarantee that you're going to be beheaded. 
But the Bible does say all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Beheading is optional. You may not get to heaven by beheading. I'm hopeful to not get to heaven by beheading. But I know that to be numbered among those faithful victors who have persevered, I must persist in identifying in my thoughts, in my actions, and by the confession of my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the invitation of our book. That you would persevere as a faithful witness to your very last breath in your thoughts, in your actions, by the confession of your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you believe that? Can you sense the weight of Jesus' seriousness with regards to these issues? He doesn't doesn't choose someone who dies as an old man or woman faithful as the model, which is not a bad thing, by the way. He chooses those who've been beheaded for their persistence. They, They provide for us an ideal example because their days were lived out under less than ideal circumstances. There are no qualifications, no exceptions, no exemptions. As followers of Christ, in order to be the faithful witness that Jesus has called us to be, in our thoughts, in our actions, and by the word of our mouth, we identify with Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God who lived without sin, who died as our substitute, who was raised again on the third day, and who is seated in a position of power, beckoning that all who would, would come and experience the salvation that can only be found in him. This is the message of our passage. This is the message of this great book. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these moments to spend together, giving consideration to the great weight of what you have called us to as your people. God, forgive us of our shortcomings. Give us eyes to see the blind spots. Give us a heart that can discern the drift. Grant conviction, God, that we might return. God, I pray that you would empower us that we might be useful in the building up of the kingdom. I pray that you find us teachable sensitive to your Holy Spirit, welcoming your presence in our midst and in our lives. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name.